please note this episode was recorded in September. When we talk about narrative around healthcare and healthcare debates, for example, sometimes the narrative is focused on primary care equals GPs or general practitioners only full stop. There's not a mention of a diverse set of solutions beyond GPs like artificial intelligence or nursing or pharmacy. I also think when we talk about, you know, that every British Columbian needs a GP, it's obviously an excellent goal to strive for, but is that something that's really realistic? Or should we be reframing that message or narrative as every British Columbian needs access to quality primary care in this province, whatever that primary care element looks like? Do we need to be rethinking this in the context of it is a crisis in healthcare, but at the same time, as they say, there's opportunity in crisis? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that other provinces, one of the approaches that other provinces is, uh, are further ahead than BC on are uh, our initiatives around team-based care and recognizing that there are a whole array of health professionals, pharmacists, nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, you name it, that uh, that bring different skills and talents to supporting somebody. Uh, so I think about the REACH clinic on uh, Commercial Drive where the pharmacist is integrated directly into that care and is a key part of the team. I think about the pharmacists that work in the downtown east side that provide services in building for residents there that they're participating in counseling and support for patients, not just dispensing medication um, to to choose pharmacists specifically. But having that team uh, whose skills complement each other so that they're working at the extent of their scope of practice, their abilities, and, uh, and thereby extending the reach to the number of patients they can support provides better care, provides more efficient care from a provincial budget perspective, and um, and also takes the weight off some of the professionals that are feeling a lot of strain right now, like family doctors. Hi, my name is David Eby, and you are listening to The Plotcast. All right, everyone, welcome to a new episode of The Podcast. This is your host, Aaron Sahoda. We're very excited today. Uh, we have a very special guest who is local from British Columbia. We have with us David Eby, three-time MLA for Vancouver Point Grey. He was first elected in 2013 and comes with a diverse background. He was executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association. He was an adjunct professor of law at the University of British Columbia, as well as president of the HIV AIDS Legal Network. And he served in different capacities, recently including serving as British Columbia's attorney general as well as Minister Responsible for Housing. We know that the race to replace BC Premier John Horgan is well underway. Today, we're going to talk to leadership candidate David Eby about his thoughts about the future of the province, what his vision is for British Columbia, especially when it comes to healthcare and the opiate crisis. So we're going to talk to him about that amongst many other things. But thanks so much, David, for being here. Good to see you. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me on the pod. So... This is going to be a tough question, but I want to start by asking you, tell our listeners something about yourself that our listeners may not know about you. Do you have a secret talent? Uh, do you have a sticker collection we don't know about? Are you a master chef or a yoga lover? <laughs> I, well, yeah, I, I mean, it's not so secret that I'm a yoga lover, but um, but one thing that people may not know about me is I, uh, I'm unduly proud of our family's minivan. Uh, minivan is not a vehicle that usually earns bragging rights, but uh, but I'm very proud of our minivan, and uh, and I like it a lot, and I think it's great, and I'm not going to apologize for it. Okay. Okay. I, I, you know, I'm thinking myself driving a minivan. I think that'd be a tough, tough sell for me, but uh, if you can pull it off. Yeah, well, you're, you know, you're a single man out on the town. Like, minivan doesn't necessarily go with that, but, uh, but for us, it's great. Well, why is 
David Eby running to be NDP leader? You know, uh, it's a, it's kind of an unusual situation in British Columbia. Uh, usually when a premier resigns, it's because they're bottoming out in popularity, like the Alberta scenario is far more common. And, uh, and then you have a lot of people running to replace that person. In British Columbia, uh, we have a premier who is stepping down, who's popular, who is uh, leading a government that's polling well, uh, that won a majority government quite convincingly. And for myself and my colleagues, we were quite surprised when John decided to do that for health reasons and to support his family. But obviously, we're enthusiastic that he um, he put his family first, you know, and he put his health first. But it raises a challenge for us as a team that wants to keep doing the work for British Columbians. So what has happened is, and why I'm running for leader, is that we've all uh, come together in the caucus. I have 49 colleagues who are backing my leadership bid. And it's because we all have the same uh, perspective, which is we spend a lot of time in opposition. Hmm. Uh, we're in government. Uh, we're doing good things for British Columbians. And we want to keep doing that work. We don't want to be divided by a long divisive leadership race. And I'm really honored that my colleagues have seen me as the person that can help keep us together and keep us focused on delivering for British Columbians. Talk to us a little bit about the files you've been dealt and dealt with over the last few years. They're arguably relatively difficult files to manage. As the minister responsible for ICBC, what you were coming into in terms of reforming the organization to make sure it was financially sustainable, which you also famously quoted as being a dumpster fire. They knew the dumpster was on fire but they pushed it behind the building instead of trying to put the fire out. You also dealt with money laundering and set up a commission to look into that. And more recently, the housing file has been put in your hands. Some really difficult files. How do you think that's going to shape the way you think about addressing other issues potentially as a leader and as premier? Well, when I look at those files that I've had, and the Premier has uh, has given me some challenging ones, I, I think some files he gave me that both of us didn't think were going to be so challenged. So ICBC, for your listeners from outside BC, our, our public auto insurer here in British Columbia was scheduled to lose a billion dollars in the first year that I had responsibility for the file. And it was something that the public was not aware of going into the election. And so when it was given to me, I don't think it was quite so obvious the distress that our Crown Corporation was in. Um, and... Uh, you know, the, the premier handed me these files to work on that. The core of the response to all of them and, and the core of, uh, frankly, my political orientation is not ideological. Okay. Uh, it's about identifying the solutions that are going to work. So for ICBC, the public crown insurer set up by the NDP, we looked at privatization. We looked at selling it, at disbanding it and having uh, private insurers provide service in the province. And no matter who I asked, they said, look, you, you know, you've got something here that you can turn around and, uh, and private insurers, the rates are going to go up. And so uh, we made the decision to keep it and fix it. I'm glad we did. Uh, it's turned around now and, and our rates are low and our benefits are good and all those good things are happening. But the core of responding to these crises, whether it's money laundering in our casinos or, or any of the other challenges, housing in, included, um, is what is going to deliver for British Columbians, what's going to get things done for them. And it's been a successful orientation for me in politics, and it's what I want to continue if I'm successful in my bid for leadership. Coming into the political arena, even thinking back, when you are first elected in 2013, for our listeners who may not have as much of an appreciation from that side being healthcare providers, what do you find different looking from the outside, someone like who's listening to our podcast versus being in it in terms of you come into politics to hopefully change people's lives and also to achieve the broad goals that you've set when you know seeking your mandate? What are some of the challenges and difficulties looking back? How do you see your role from the outside where things might seem a bit more rosy? Being an elected official now for, I guess, almost six or seven years, 
has your perspective changed? Well, I think um, there are two phases to my political career. One is 2013 through 17 when I spent four years in opposition, mm. uh, and then 17 forward when I was in government and in a cabinet minister role. So uh, 13 to 17, what really I found quite surprising being in the legislature and meeting other politicians was from the outside, you get the sense that politicians from a particular party are kind of this homogeneous group that all share the same perspective and all have the same political opinions. And, um, you know, there's really, you're talking to one, you're talking to the Borg. It's essentially one large organism that you can't (laughs) borrow a metaphor from Premier Horgan. But, you know, what I found 2013 to 17 was just this incredible diversity of political perspective, even within political parties, even within the then government party and within the NDP. Um, And so that was very enlightening. People obviously have different interests and different perspectives. They come from different parts of the province. 17 through to today in government, you know, the thing that I found quite remarkable was the role of the public service. I mean, in opposition, we're very focused on the political level across the aisle from us. Um, But the influence of the public service on whether things get done or don't get done and what options are presented and how they're presented and um, and the seriousness with which many, many members of the public service take their oath to serve the government impartially and deliver on those things. It was just a sharp learning curve about the public service, and it's something that doesn't get a lot of attention. And I've heard cynically people say, look, the public service wins every election, so they're not worried about <laughs> politics. Right. Uh, and people say quite uh, glowingly, you know, the public service in B.C., uh, is incredibly professional and, uh, and talented. And I, that's been my experience too. So it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot in politics and uh, on any side, inside or outside. And it's been um, it's been interesting to come up to speed on that. Interesting. Okay. Having a stable public service is probably a good thing, I'm assuming. And they're the ones who are a really important piece of that overall machinery when it comes to government. So looking at your vision and priorities for British Columbia, tell us a little bit about what your key priorities are if you were chosen to be leader of the NDP and ultimately premier. Well, I mean, appropriate to this podcast, uh, right now, I'm, uh, Aaron, I'm touring the province and uh, and talking to a lot of people across BC and encouraging them to sign up for the NDP for the leadership contest and if they're NDP members to vote for me. A part of that is a listening exercise, you know, what's going on in your community. And there's a set of priorities that come up. Um, no matter which community I'm in, and, and in roughly this order, healthcare, um, mm-hmm. concern about access to family doctors or acute care response, hospitals, health centers, paramedics, housing, um, and a couple streams of that, one related to homelessness and sort of deep poverty-related housing, uh, and the other just middle-class housing, the availability for people with middle incomes to find homes. Okay. And then the third in downtown cores, and some of it followed from COVID and some from the opioid overdose crisis and some of it from housing crisis, uh, just the street disorder in downtowns, uh, Trail, uh, Terrace, uh, Prince George, uh, Vancouver, downtown east side, hmm. just uh, people consistently concerned about very visible mental health and addiction issues in the streets and the community, people suffering and, and wanting us to do better on that. So definitely a few priorities there and uh, healthcare looks like it's at the top. I want to deep dive into that. As you've mentioned, there's no shortage of problems to deal with today, especially going through a pandemic. Now, focusing on healthcare, we know COVID has really disrupted all sectors, specifically including how we think about healthcare sustainability, as well as the delivery of healthcare. We've had Andre Picard on this podcast talking about the public versus private debate about how Medicare, when it was established, really focused on funding two things, which was doctors and hospitals. And today, guess what? We're basically funding doctors and hospitals, but we're not really looking at other services like dental care, physio, et cetera. We have issues that are obviously national when it comes to things like health workforce issues, a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic, despite what people might say. 
and a primary care crunch. How do you intend to specifically tackle some of the issues we face in primary care that we're seeing a lot of voices chime into today, especially? Well, my... um my wife is a uh, family physician. When we started dating, she was a nurse, and I, uh, you know, we were out on a date early on, and uh, and she said, oh, "I'm thinking about going back to school and maybe a nurse practitioner, but I've always wanted to be a family doctor. I just think it's too late in my career." And early dates, you know, very in love uh, at this romantic <laughs> restaurant. I look into her eyes. And I'm like, "Oh, you're so brilliant. You're so amazing. I, how could you not follow your dreams? You have to be a family <laughs> doctor." And uh, you know, I mean, I, I knew uh, very little about how much training was involved <laughs> to become a family doctor. Sure. Uh, so eight years later, and two kids, uh, finally, she's done school and practicing, but. She's one of two family physicians coming out of uh, UBC mm-hmm. uh, in her class that took a contract with the health authority to do a traditional family practice, a new to practice contract, and maybe others have since then. But at the time that she accepted it, those were the statistics. And and I asked her like, why didn't your colleagues take these contracts? And she said, well, it's, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You get paid more to do drop-in clinics. Uh, and now uh, virtual care, you get paid more to do um, urgent primary care, you get paid more to be a hospitalist, a uh, family doctor in hospital. Right. And uh, and so not only do you get paid more, you don't have to run a business, you don't have the overhead, you don't have uh, to find someone to fill in when you're on vacation. No matter how you stack it, flexibility, pay, conditions of work, it's hard to make a case for a traditional family practice. And so the first part of it really, to my mind, is aligning the incentives for family doctors with what we want them to do. Um, when I look and across the country and hear about what's happening in other places, uh, health centers, uh, community health centers, seems like a model that could work for us. In British Columbia, I think the urgent primary care centers were initially conceptualized as that, mm-hmm. but really morphed into uh, more like a, in the pandemic, a place to take the weight off emergency rooms and, and keep support for patients that urgently needed to see a physician, but their doctor was only available virtually. Mm-hmm. But these, the idea is, uh, of course, that the family doctor uh, doesn't have to run that business. They go in and they do their shift at the uh, health center, but they're surrounded by medical professionals. Could be pharmacists, nurses in Manitoba. They have physician assistants to expand their reach. They have support for if they need to take time off work. Um, they have pe- colleagues who are taking call shifts for them. And so that seems like a, a very good model for us to look at. Mm-hmm. And the other component is uh, is people who are internationally trained, uh, international medical graduates, as well as people with international experience. How do we assess and train and get people up to speed to get them into the healthcare system as quickly as possible? We've done some work around recognizing nurse credentials, which was ur- urgently needed, mm-hmm. um, but it's the case certainly across healthcare. I uh, was at an event in Chilliwack hosted by a dentist and a surgeon, and, and you might know the, the term, but basically someone who works on the muscles of the jaw and face and teeth. And, uh, and so I don't know what specialty that was, but both from Pakistan and both working for the school board um, because their credentials oh. can't be recognized in BC. And so, you know, we need those health professionals to be working in the system. And we've proposed a new medical school for uh, for Surrey. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity for it to focus really on assessing people and getting them the training they need to get into the system. And I imagine, you know, Aaron, you as a pharmacist uh, know this issue too, but just making sure that professionals are working to their a term that I learned from my wife uh, early on in our dating as she complained about it, about scope of practice. Mm. Um, She was a nurse in a residential hotel on the downtown east side and was like a, almost very close to a family doctor for a bunch of women in the hotel that she worked at. Uh, And then that job, the uh, BC Liberals cut the funding for that. And then she, she lost that job and she couldn't find another nursing job where she was able to work at that scope. And so making sure that the health professionals that we do have in the system are able to work to the full capacity that they're trained for is, a, is another critical piece. 
You've touched on some really interesting solutions, which I think are definitely needing to be looked at and urgently from a perspective of ensuring British Columbians have quality access to healthcare. And you also mentioned practicing to the full extent of the scope. And, you know, one thing I notice being a frontline pharmacist, when we talk about narrative around healthcare and healthcare debates, for example, sometimes the narrative is focused on primary care equals GPs or general practitioners only full stop. There's not a mention of a diverse set of solutions beyond GPs like artificial intelligence or nursing or pharmacy. I also think when we talk about, you know, that every British Columbian needs a GP, it's obviously an excellent goal to strive for, but is that something that's really realistic? Or should we be reframing that message or narrative as every British Columbian needs access to quality primary care in this province, whatever that primary care element looks like? Do we need to be rethinking this in the context of it is a crisis in healthcare, but at the same time, as they say, there's opportunity in crisis? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that other provinces, one of the approaches that other provinces is uh, are further ahead than BC on are, uh, are initiatives around team-based care and recognizing that there are a whole array of health professionals, pharmacists, nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, you name it, that uh, that bring different skills and talents to supporting somebody. Uh, so I think about the REACH clinic on uh, Commercial Drive where the pharmacist is integrated directly into that care and is a key part of the team. I think about the pharmacists that work in the downtown east side that provide services in building for residents there that they're participating in counseling and support for patients, not just dispensing medication um, to, to choose pharmacists specifically. But having that team uh, whose skills complement each other so that they're working at the extent of their scope of practice, their abilities, and, uh, and thereby extending the reach to the number of patients they can support provides better care, provides more efficient care from a provincial budget perspective, and um, and also takes the weight off some of the professionals that are feeling a lot of strain right now, like family doctors. Yeah, and to that point, uh, one thing to add, talking about team-based care. So British Columbia is actually the last province in Canada where pharmacists, for example, are not able to prescribe or initiate a therapy if appropriate for a patient, whether that be for a minor ailment, so like skin infection or cuts and scrapes, cold sores, etc. Our colleagues in Alberta actually have had a lot of experience with this, where they are able to prescribe almost anything within their comfort level except narcotics. Additional training certification is required. They're also able to order labs in relation to monitoring the drug therapy. But the BC Liberals introduced, which is the opposition party here in British Columbia, sort of a response to the healthcare crunch. And one of the things that caught my attention was <clears throat> commitment to looking at, you know, you talk about expanding the scope of the pharmacist to be able to prescribe for minor ailments and in consultation with physicians. From my personal experience working this week, I noticed that after about four o'clock, all the clinics, when they close down, the only real place we can send patients is the ER. And it is happening now. Um, had a few cases where I knew what was going on. They had a history, but where hands are tied from a regulatory perspective here. If you ultimately become premier, would you consider looking at expanding these types of activities like pharmacists prescribing or other healthcare provider prescribing, being able to order labs, et cetera, as part of the suite of solutions? Yeah, I think, you know, from the provincial perspective, um, we need to be looking at all of the potential solutions to um, uh, taking pressure off the system, making sure people are working to their capacity and their skills. You know, I didn't know until my wife went back to school that pharmacists uh, mapped up with uh, med students in the beginning of medical school training, uh, that they did the exact same training 
and I wasn't aware of all the background of training that uh, that pharmacists do. Um, stories that I've heard from people who don't have family doctors who can't get into a drop-in clinic and they just need a prescription refilled or they're trying to, to find someone to counsel them through a specific medical issue that they're having. I think we need to be looking at every way that we can find to support them. Now, I say that, but I don't know. It's not my area of expertise sure. which areas um, are most appropriate for a pharmacist to take on uh, and which are best placed still uh, in the emergency room if there's no other place. Um, but I do think we need to have those conversations in the healthcare system. And, and uh, you know, I think this is an idea that pharmacists have been talking about for a while. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a good opportunity for us to look at how we can leverage the skills and abilities of pharmacists to take pressure off the system. The point you made about training in the new doctor pharmacy program, it's an additional year of clinical patient-facing activities where we teach the students how to physically assess as well as diagnose. It's integrated now in the curriculum in the anticipation of, like you say, serving on a team-based environment where uh, sometimes you have delegated prescribing authorities in certain hospitals and health authorities, so that'd be great to look at. It. The other pillar around this is the patient, and ultimately, in my experience in the front lines, I find that whether it's a good idea, bad idea, it's the patient obviously that's impacted, and sometimes it's the patient that suffers from the gaps in care. Um, I also feel that there's a lack of awareness of the various components of how our healthcare system works. Patients need to be educated on how to be good advocates as part of this conversation. Do you think there's a role for more of that outreach to patients to be better educated on the faucets or the intricacies of the healthcare system so that they can advocate for themselves as well as their families? Because we know the healthcare system is very complex. Uh, it's a labyrinth at best, and it touches on many different aspects, screening, diagnostics, inpatient, outpatient, et cetera. What are your thoughts about that? Well, it's interesting. I, um, you know, I have had people... Um, and and just to be totally clear, this is not something that I'm contemplating at all. But I have had people say, look, there are people who come in uh, to the emergency room or to urgent care who, you know, they really don't have any medical issue and they're coming repeatedly and using resources. So we should charge a user fee each time they come into the um, to the healthcare system. I think what's underlining that and underlying it uh, is a concern that uh, people who have nowhere else to go or who are lonely or who have mental health issues are not being adequately served, but also that there is a level of patient education needed about where the right places to go with the right medical issue and how to how to use resources better. I, uh, I think it's a great suggestion. I don't have any specific policy um, uh, uh, responses to it other than to say patients are a key part of the system that are often overlooked in terms of how care is delivered. And it's a common critique of our healthcare system that, you know, we're very focused on acute care and less focused on prevention and on kind of upstream care, uh, which is something that suggestion seems to fall into for me. And, and it's the kind of work that we're going to have to do, especially with a rapidly aging population, uh, to take pressure off the system. And I, for example, a cancer diagnosis can disrupt someone's life. And with the growing population in British Columbia, as well as uh, an aging population, like you say, some of these chronic conditions, we're thinking about cancer as a chronic condition now. The challenges of making sure there's enough resources in place to make a timely and early detection, which is really key. You mentioned prevention versus reactive care. One thing about that is, and I know there's a lot of good suggestions as part of this whole primary care debate that we should be focusing on prevention and investing our resources there. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road and you look at the proportion of funds that are spent on building a hospital or care center or more reactive care, whether it be here in Canada or other countries, it often goes that way. Do you think it's because of politics and how 
our four-year election cycles are structured. I'm thinking, of, you know, if I'm a constituent of a riding, I want to see something tangible at the end of your tenure versus trying to quantify prevention. Like, how do we approach that? Because it's a great idea we learn about in school, but we don't see it in actuality. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the challenge in mapping up public health initiatives with outcomes uh, that are measurable and visible for people makes it a harder sell in politics. And also there's a reality to the situation where someone's like, look, I can't find a family doctor. And you say, well, you know, uh, great news. We've started a, a physical education program for youth in the schools that is likely to reduce the incidence of uh, of lifestyle disease by 10% in the next 20 years. You know, I, mean, like, well, I still need a family doctor, man. Uh, and, uh, you know, I still need that hospital bed. And uh, we're doing an active seniors program where people are doing weight-bearing exercise and they're, right. it's going to reduce osteoporosis. And they're like, well, my mom still needs this cancer care or whatever. So the acuity and the visibility of it and the urgency of an acute health incident, I think, fits well into the short-term political cycle of four years. Um, so out of a sense of broader public responsibility, we expect politicians to look long-term, but it, it can be quite hard to do when, and when health is front, front and center, it tends to be around acute care challenges. I mean, for our listeners, it's good to know. You have decades of planning sometimes as public health strategy. You don't know when it started, when the results will be even made available. Uh, and we know that there's no ribbon cutting <laughs> when it comes to that. And I'm not saying the hospitals shouldn't be built. Absolutely, we need more facilities for a rapidly growing population here in British Columbia. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and our government's building hospitals in uh, Surrey, on Vancouver <laughs> Island, and in Interior. But, you know, when you talk to public health folks and they present the data, so like uh, I'll give you a concrete example of uh, 30 kilometer per hour speed limits in cities, right? And they say, look, if everyone was driving at 30 in the cities, and most people always drive at 30 anyway because there's so much traffic, you look at the number of accidents that would be less severe and therefore less demand on hospitals and so on. And also, you know, and then as a politician, you're thinking, wow, so I'm going to go out and tell everybody that although they crawl along at 30 in the city because of traffic anyway, now they actually by law have to drive at 30 and that's going to be a tough sell. So I, public health, and you could look at alcohol policy in the same kind of lens. You, you know, uh, public health people say, we need to increase the cost of alcohol. We need to decrease the availability. And then your constituents are saying, God, we really want a brew pub, uh, you know, in our community. And why don't we have one? There are some very obvious conflicts between public health and day-to-day -day politics. interesting and something to potentially work on further to bridge those kind of conversations. Definitely have had some public health folks as part of this conversation in the podcast. And interesting here, the perspectives we had the Canadian Medical Association, former president now, Dr. Catherine Smart, talk about <clears throat> some of the preventative stuff as well, which also gets me to think about the investing in our healthcare system. We talk over 40% of the budget, 40 cents to the dollar goes towards the health portfolio. And appreciating that that hasn't been your focus in the last few years with the portfolios you've had. Do we need to focus on models that are more outcome orientated? And what I mean by that is if I'm a clinician, pharmacist, physician, and you're the other clinician across the street, is there a way of making sure that we're paid according to the quality of care we're providing? So there's differential remuneration based on various metrics that we can potentially even be compared on key metrics. Do you think we need to shift towards that instead of this conversation around volume-based care, where we're only hyper-focused on the number of patients a practitioner sees in a day. So if I see 50 patients a day and you see 20 patients a day, I win. I, quote-unquote, am performing better care. Yeah, the, the question of incentives and how we pay healthcare providers is a really important one. And, uh, and I raised it around the issue of family doctors, and I'll use that example again. Uh, there are provinces that have, they're called capitation 
models where physicians are paid based on the number of patients they take. And then there's additional, you know, if the patient has a particular health challenge that makes them a more complex patient, then they get additional um, a flat rate based on that person being attached to that physician, which encourages the physician to attach to patients. But it can not adequately capture the service that's delivered. So then the model adds in a fee-for-service component as well, but maybe that incents uh, certain kinds of treatments rather than others and certain kinds of approaches rather than others. Aligning those incentives with performance is, is I would say, one of the big challenges in healthcare mm-hmm. and uh, why there's, I think, a push towards a more salary-based system for physicians in the healthcare system generally, at least um, governments seem to have more interest in that and patients uh, seem to support it. The um, the broader question that you're asking about, you know, outcomes and, you know, longevity of life, uh, sort of chronic disease incidence and management, uh, the need for someone to use acute care, even though they're connected to a physician, all of those metrics are critically important and also carry sort of political consequences with them. Okay. You know, if for any profession, when you're being evaluated on the basis of metrics and people are saying, well, you, you didn't see as many patients, but you know that your patients are more complex. And you say, well, what I should be measured on is that I'm seeing more complex patients. We see this in the nonprofit sector in housing, for example. You know, you have a housing provider that takes on the most complex, most challenging people, they get the most complaints. So if you set up a metric that measures complaints, it looks like they're the worst provider, but actually they're the one, and and compared to the provider that's only taking people with mild challenges and they're not getting those complaints. So uh, it's a very fraught area and, and also vital. You know, if we expect to deliver healthcare to British Columbians in a way that makes sense to people, in a way that delivers outcomes, we have to have metrics because what get, gets measured gets done. Uh, but also it gives us the ability to determine what's working and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And the hasty implementation of metrics can result in really perverse outcomes. And so it will be a partnership with uh, the medical sector generally about how we do this and what it looks like. But but that data is really important. Yeah, definitely there's challenges. is not a perfect model that you can set up or that we have seen globally that exists. But it, like you say, it's worth a stab to look at how we can get there. And also for the taxpayer to make sure that they're getting value I know healthcare is very difficult to sometimes easily quantify to say, you know, we're making investments and we're getting an X result. It's not about that, but that, you know, we are hitting the mark in terms of healthcare spending sustainability and that we are measuring outcomes. I wanted to shift gears a little bit. I wanted to touch on one area that you've dealt with, the BC Family Compensations Act. And this is something that is related to the healthcare sector as well as other sectors. We know in BC, there's been some interesting cases where as a result of medical negligence, a wrongful death has occurred. And let's say the family or those who are involved with that individual, they cannot initiate any legal action against the entity, whether it be a health authority, a healthcare practitioner. And BC is the only province in the country that has this limiting factor, especially when you're looking at seniors, parents, as well as young children. Successive governments have looked at changing this, but what's the challenge? Is it in the public interest to relook at this from an accountability perspective and maybe set up something like a commission like you've set up in the ICBC tribunal space where there's a very clear guidance around this, but just from a perspective of making sure these things don't happen again and again. Yeah. What's going on with the file and what are the challenges with this? Sure. So the, you know, our, our legal system in BC and, and in many parts of North America is set up. So if you uh, injure somebody through your negligence, uh, you're paying to help make them whole again. And so it it tends to be that the awards are the largest for the people who are badly injured but live. 
Uh, and if somebody dies, uh, we have legislation in BC that really limits compensation to the point that lawyers tend not to take on these files. And families feel that they don't get answers and they feel uh, that justice isn't delivered when someone is negligently uh, killed through the actions of somebody else. Now, the biggest, um, there are two areas where we see this the most. One is car collisions mm -hmm. uh, and one is medical errors. On the car collision side, our reforms around ICBC increased compensation around death. And it's not a perfect system, but it's significantly improved from where it was. Um, on the medical error side, this is a really interesting area because, you know, one approach could be, let's just get rid of the Compensation Act mm -hmm. and have a, a significant amount of damages. And then doctors and nurses and pharmacists and others are in court defending their decisions all the time, okay. uh, just like we had previously with collisions. Um, and it has knock-on effects on insurance, liability insurance for all those health professionals and, and some additional public cost. But what that approach does is it causes people not to be frank about medical errors, right? If you make a mistake, uh, it'd be very reluctant, that results in someone's death, be very reluctant to say, look, I hooked up the wrong bag or I forgot to take out a sponge or like whatever the thing is that caused the prescribed the wrong or to put the wrong pill in the wrong bottle. And, yeah. and that makes it harder for the system to say, okay, what can we do to, we're seeing a lot of errors of this kind. What can we do to prevent these kinds of errors? Because people aren't admitting to them, they're not acknowledging them and so on. And other uh, professionals in the room that know what happened are reluctant to come forward because there are all these awful consequences for everybody. And so how do we balance our desire to know what happened, the family's desire to know what happened, and the desire for compensation uh, to recognize the life of the person and to help cover expenses, um, you know, with a, an adversarial legal system? So that's, I mean, you've really put your finger on the challenge of this reform. Uh, our government committed to, uh, to reforming this system before the end of the term. And, uh, and is looking at all kinds of options, but uh, in particular, trying to find those areas where it makes sense for us to do this reform without causing adverse consequences. And thanks for sharing that. I don't necessarily think it's about compensation, but really ensuring that others don't experience it, that there's some type of change in protocol, for example. Talking about the whole patient advocacy piece, and maybe this is a component of that. We know that, for example, the current system as it is, there are reviews that are done by the patient quality review board or patient quality review office, but they're non-binding and they can be escalated to the minister, I think, to make a call. But essentially, if it's a slap on the wrist, it may not serve its purpose as a structure. And towards the end here, the opiate crisis. And briefly, in the media, you cause a bit of a buzz for those individuals and patients who are overdosing multiple times. We have seen on the front lines uh, where, for example, they're in the ER and they're back on the streets. Some really challenging cases, and you suggested involuntarily providing care for them. What did you mean by that? And when it comes to mental health and addiction, the downtown east side specifically, what other new approaches would you try? I know we're spending a lot, we're trying a lot of different modalities, but what more would you do if you were elected leader? Yeah, we're, we're passing a really grim milestone of 10,000 people dead since the declaration of the overdose crisis. And I think it's time for us to have a look at what we've done and what's worked and what hasn't and what the gaps are. When I look at what we've done, I think we've done quite well on trying to get between people and the toxic drug supply. So through prescription opioids and uh, opioid agonist therapy and seeking that decriminalization exemption from Health Canada, leading Canada in that regard. Um, I always understood, and from the earliest days that I worked in the downtown east side, I always understood that harm reduction, that uh, substitution therapy, all of this was to support people, hopefully to be able to get into treatment, to keep them alive so that they could potentially get into treatment and restart their lives. And 
And I've seen a lot of people go through recovery and, and just become different people at the other side and do so well. Um, I think that the, the opportunity for us is around treatment, around mental health treatment and addiction treatment to expand that work, um, to have that seamless treatment in place. There's one specific scenario, though, that I'm really troubled by, which I've heard about on the campaign trail. It's the one you outlined where somebody overdoses, they go into the emergency room, they get the Narcan and they chase the opioid out of their system and they wake up and they're angry and they're sober and they really face those intense cravings for fentanyl, which, you know, I can't understand. I, I haven't been there, but I am told are just profound uh, in terms of the desire to use fentanyl again. And so they go out and they do, and they overdose again, and they're back in the emergency room again. And this can happen three and four and even five times in a single day. And this happens until the person is so brain injured that they come into permanent government care or they die. Um, and I just think there's got to be a way for us to interrupt that cycle. And, you know, I don't pretend to know what it looks like for Indigenous communities, especially that have a long history of the state intervening and imposing things on Indigenous people right. um, or for women or whatever vulnerable group. But I do know that, you know, certainly for myself, for my kids, for my family, I would hope that somebody would intervene. And just like I would hope they would intervene if it was any other poison that they were putting into their body. But uh, so I, I want to start that conversation. I want to talk to uh, Indigenous leaders, people with lived experience. I want our government to do that. And for a whole bunch of reasons, I think we can do better mm -hmm. in that particular scenario. And more generally around involuntary admissions, I think physicians that are making those difficult decisions should know that we have high quality facilities available, high quality support available, beds available. If, if someone needs that kind of level of medical intervention for a mental health crisis that they're in, that they can make that decision without worrying about, are there enough beds? Do we have space? What will the care be like? So that they can make the decision in the best interest of the patient alone. That's really interesting. I, I like what you said about looking at things and new and novel ways, um, looking at how we've been doing things in the past and if there's any new solutions and if there's new ways that we can look at old problems. When you had mentioned that in the media, it's about people talking about the opioid crisis in different ways. And we know in COVID as a public health crisis, at some point, uh, I guess you could say it took the limelight. Some people forgot about that there's an opiate crisis still going on. So I think that awareness of these dual crises always should be on top of mind of everyone. Uh, if anything, like you've mentioned, I think looking at not just doing things just because we've been doing them the same way all the time, but because they work. So we'll keep an eye out for that. All right. And we have one last question for you, uh, especially for those early to mid-career healthcare providers who are tuning in today to the podcast episode. You know, what message do you have? I mean, some of them have not had any experience when it comes to public health leadership or politics, but how do they play a role in moving the dial forward, moving the conversation forward and some of the gaps that you've identified as part of our conversation today? Well, um, two parts to that. Uh, one, I would say, you know, in a province with a rapidly growing population and an aging population and the impacts of COVID, I know how stressed and, um, and how challenging it's been to the medical system. So I'd, I'd just like to say thanks for all the work that people have done throughout the crisis of COVID and the opioid crisis at the same time and express my appreciation for that. The second is to reassure people that this is front of mind for government, certainly for the current premier and uh, will be for me if I'm successful uh, in my leadership bid. And I look forward to working with medical professionals. The third is that the premier and the government are not, you know, we're not gonna solve this problem alone. And uh, we're really the agents for, from my perspective, the agents for British Columbians to deal with challenges. Mm -hmm. And I am really looking forward to collaborating and to really having that collaborative approach 
I think we're at a point, as you said, of crisis, which creates opportunities for change we haven't seen before. And it's a generational opportunity to look at how we're doing things and work together differently. And to come together in good faith to do that, I think, is the opportunity that's on the table. And I would love to do that with medical professionals in BC um, so that we can deliver the best. Because I, I really believe that everybody went into that profession to provide support and help people because I've just met so many medical professionals. That's all they want to do. Mm-hmm. And they feel frustrated that that uh, isn't happening on occasion and sometimes more than on occasion in their communities. So all of us working together in good faith, I think that we can deliver a really high quality medical system for British Columbians here. Uh, you know, regardless of what happens in the leadership race, we'll definitely have you back to further develop that and maybe facilitate some of these frontline conversations from a multidisciplinary lens. I think really to mid-career providers, young leaders, very eager to share possible solutions, to share what they're seeing on the front lines. And sometimes that can get lost in translation, government, big bureaucracy, or just not knowing where's an outlet to actually provide that feedback. So maybe as part of your part two, you can have a listening tour from a healthcare lens and listen to frontline providers. David Eby, three-time MLA from Vancouver Point Grey, NDP leadership candidate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Lots of fun, and uh, and thanks to all your listeners. Thank you. Wait, Aaron, you forgot to mention, this episode was recorded prior to when David was confirmed as Premier. David Eby was just recently confirmed as NDP leader and BC's 37th Premier. So that's Premier Eby for you. Special thanks to the pharmacy leaders of Tomorrow Ikea Plotcast. Check out the links in the podcast show notes for more info.